Uh, well, good morning. Good rainy September morning. My name is Marshall. I'll be teaching on the passage that Molly has just uh, read for us. Uh, yeah, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you uh, this morning, both those of you who are with us in the auditorium and the sanctuary here, also those of you who are joining us online. Welcome to you as well. I do want to highlight two announcements that pertain to uh, directly to me, I guess. Uh, the first is I will be resuming. This group has been continuing to meet uh, throughout the summer, but uh, Tuesdays at 12 is a prayer meeting uh, that I lead with others from 12 to 12.30 on Tuesdays. Uh, it's a great chance to come together, to pray together. We start promptly at noon and end at 12.30. Uh, we meet in the prayer room right there in the back, so I hope that uh, many of you can join us. There's a faithful core uh, that has been praying together. It's one of my favorite times of the week. I'm there every Tuesday that I'm able and in town to be there. So that's this Tuesday beginning at 12, 12 to 12.30, hard stop at 12, hard stop at 1230. I also want to invite you on page 12, these are page 11 and 12 of the announcements. A couple of weeks from now, I invite you to my home with my wife, uh, who you see is fun, so it's worth coming. Uh, I might not be fun, but she is. Um, uh, Welcome to Grace is an opportunity for those of you, if you're visiting, if you're a guest, or if you just want to learn more about Grace and you've never been to one of these events, uh, we want to host you in our home, allow you to connect with our staff, with us, and also to learn a little bit more about the church. That is uh, September 24th at 7 p.m. You can RSVP to, uh, to my wife, and we'd love to host you here in a couple weeks in our home. Let me pray, though, before we look at this passage of Scripture. God, we come to this sad and sordid tale that is ultimately glorious when it comes to you. I pray that you would meet us. God, we come into this room, into this building, in a lot of different places. Some of us feel like the weather outside, uh, downcast, rainy, gloomy. Others of us are numb. Others of us are sad. Some of us, God, are rejoicing and hopeful, fall, and all that it promises and brings. God, wherever we are, I pray that you would meet us through this ancient story by the power of your Spirit for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this fall we're doing a sermon series on grace. And so as a preacher, you study, you read the Bible, you read these commentaries. But I also want to read things alongside that. So I have gone back this fall and have been rereading the great theologian of grace in the history of the church, my hero, one of my favorite, I can't wait to meet this person in heaven, Augustine, or Augustine, I don't know how to say it, but anyway, 1,600 years ago, this great North African is the theologian of grace. Let me tell you a little bit of his story. He was raised in North Africa, and he lived a dissolute and immoral life as a young man. He fathered a child out of wedlock, and he basically discarded the mother of that child. Along the way as a youth, he visited bathhouses where all kinds of seedy behavior takes place. He was a thief, not because he was poor and needed the money. He was a thief just because he wanted to experience the thrill of stealing. Now, to advance his career, he moves away from North Africa. He moves to Italy, to Rome and Milan. It'd be like somebody from the hinterlands of Iowa, from an Iowa farm committee, moving to New York City to make it big. But something strange happens to Augustine along the way. While he's in Italy, he becomes a Christian. He professes faith. He comes to faith. He's baptized. And so he moves back home. He moves back to North Africa, and he has a career change. From being an academic, a scholar, he enters the church. He becomes a pastor, Augustine does. 
In the year 391, he was ordained as a priest. And four years later, he was made bishop of Hippo, which is basically the bishop of North Africa. Okay, now a bishop, it's not a little familiar term to some of us in Presbyterian worlds, but a bishop is basically a pastor of pastors, a pastor to a group of churches, okay? And as a bishop, Augustine starts his writing career, his pastoral writing career, in a way that you would expect. In 395, the year he's ordained as a bishop, he writes a book called On Christian Doctrine. That seems like a very appropriate title for a bishop to write. The next book he writes in 397 is a book called Against the Manichaean Heresy. So he's talking about Christian doctrine. He's going against against heresies. But then in 397, two years into his bishopric, two years in, he writes a book that will change the course of Western history. It is called The Confessions of St. Augustine. And where this bishop, who is trying to establish himself, establish his religious authority, he publicly writes about his sordid past. He writes about the bathhouse. He writes about the thievery. It's, I mean, there's parts of it that you're like, I can't believe that he writes this. I can't believe I'm reading this. But he doesn't just write about his past. He also writes about his present. He writes about his illicit dreams. He writes about the struggle that's within him. At one point, and perhaps the high point of the book, he says this. Speaking of the struggle in, of good and evil within him, at that moment, in the present, as a bishop, he says, which side will win? I don't know. I just don't know. Okay, can you imagine? I mean, it's like the opposite instinct. You're establishing yourself. You come back to your hometown. Everybody knows what you were like as a youth. And yet he, saw, he doesn't run from that. He doesn't hide that. He doesn't try to whitewash it. Talk about how good he is. He says, no, this, this, let me tell you what really happened when I went to the bathhouse, when I stole, when I did these things. Right? Why? He didn't have to write this. He, didn't ha- he could have kept writing books like On Christian Doctrine or On the Trinity. But he writes the confessions. Why does Augustine tell such a sordid tale about himself? Well, this fall we've been doing a deep dive, as I mentioned, into grace. We've called the sermon series Amazing Grace and the Life of Jacob. An illustration of grace, the life of Jacob it is. We have defined grace and will continue to every week. Grace is unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God, and that grace slowly, usually painfully, by the power of God, makes people more like God himself. And today's story is a sordid tale in a town called Haran. I mean, this is like Real Housewives of Haran. And this is the mothers and fathers of the faith. It's not flattering. Why? This story doesn't have to be told. Why is this story included in the text? Why is this story in the very first book of the Bible? Well, I think like Augustine's Confessions, this story displays some fundamental truths about who we are as human beings, about our frailty, about grace, and ultimately about our God. So this morning I want us to see three things from this story. I want to see the frailty of humanity the futility of idolatry, and ultimately the faithfulness of God. The frailty of humanity, the futility of idolatry, and the faithfulness of God. First, the frailty of humanity. Now, to understand this passage, let me just a little bit of a preview. You have to understand and see the importance of childbearing, of fertility to understand this passage. 
Now, fertility is a big deal in our today's culture. I recently heard a story of a frozen embryo from one woman carried to term by a second woman and adopted by a third woman. Uh, This web of connection among these three women, actually from different continents in that case. We live in a brave new world for fertility. And let me just say, I'm going to talk about fertility and even fertility treatments today. Fertility treatments are in this text, but I'm saying nothing about fertility treatments. They're good and can be used, okay? But we have to understand how important fertility is. And why is fertility such a big deal? The ability to bear children. There's a God-given longing. There's a God-given longing to bear children. And when someone struggles, a woman struggles to have children, it is deeply, deeply painful. And we will all go to great lengths to have children. And this story is an index of the very real and present, I might add, pain of infertility. So painful for so many And if you can imagine, fertility wasn't even, I know it's so painful. If you can imagine, fertility is an even bigger deal in the ancient world. Children were not just a God-giving longing who were a financial liability. I mean, all of us would be wealthier if we didn't have children. <laughs> in the ancient world, to have children was a financial asset. They were your future labor force. They were your retirement. They were your social security. They were your hospice care, your medical providers, your doctors, your nurse. They were everything about your future. Children were. Fertility was an even bigger deal in the ancient world. So that's the background. It's really the foreground in many ways of this story. Well, let's dive in, though. This story is like dysfunction junction. The first person we meet here, we looked at this last week, is Leah. Look at the very first verse printed, uh, chapter 24, verse 31. It says that Leah, who is the older, less attractive daughter, and it says she was hated. And in her desperation for her husband's love and affection, she keeps having children, giving them names to try to attract her husband in hopes that her husband would pay attention to her. Last week, Nick walked through this so beautifully. We see the names that she wants to be seen by her husband. She wants to be heard. She wants to be attached. Those are the names of her first three sons. Then the next person we meet is her sister, Rachel. Chapter 30, verse 1. The beloved and beautiful Rachel. But Rachel is unable to have children. The one thing she really wants. And so chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, the first thing we see her do, Rachel, is she starts a yelling match with her husband. Who, by the way, Jacob at this point, he gets high marks as a theologian. God is the source of life, he basically says. Good job, Jacob. Uh, But he's terrible marks as a sensitive husband. He neither prays for his wife nor empathizes with her. He just escalates it. He yells back at her. Because of her own pain and brokenness, verse 3, Rachel comes up with a bankrupt idea of giving her maidservant to her husband as a wife. Takes her maidservant, her employee, And gives it to her husband as a wife, as a sexual partner. Which is to say she treats her servant as a piece of property. Something for her own bidding. Imagine Billa. That's the woman's name. We need to say him these names. Billa. Zilpah. Imagine being Billa. Forced by your boss to have intimacy with her husband. I don't want to whitewash this. 
we are venturing, we are venturing into the territory of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, young women totally objectified for what they can do. Verse 9, the unloved Leah, she adopts the same strategy. And she does it with a woman named Zilpah. Can you imagine these two hurting young teenagers in the back room being, who's being sent forward tonight? It's awful. Don't whitewash it. The pain and dysfunction of this family is escalating. All of a sudden, we're in an arms race where everything goes. It is all, no holds barred. Everything goes. No apparent concern for the servants or, mind us, the children. Talk about that in just a second. It's not a love triangle. It's a love pentagon. In the space of these verses, Jacob, the father of the faith, sleeps with and fathers children by four women. Speaking of children and generational dysfunction, I need to point this out to us because I'm not going to talk about it in several weeks in chapter 35. But in chapter 35, several chapters ahead, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, who we meet in verse 32 here, chapter 29, verse 32, born to him by Leah, in Genesis 35, in an act of both lust and power politics over his own dad and brothers, will seduce and sleep with Bilhah, Rachel's servant, the other, his, not his mother's, stepmother's uh, uh, servant, and Jacob's third wife, right? That's what he does. That, that, how does he receive this tradition? Well, I, I'm going to go do this too. I'm going to go sleep with Bilhah. Generational and grievous dysfunction. This is, don't laugh, this is real housewife's meets Love Island, meets Arrested Development, meets Jeffrey Epstein. This is a hothouse, and it is awful. Why is it in the first book of the Bible? Why is it here? It is honest about the frailty, our brokenness. The Bible and Christianity almost seem to revel in morally ambiguous characters. Morally ambiguous characters, you know. Like you and like me. You see, Augustine, to start where I started, he wrote what he did because his imagination had been shaped and captured by the Bible. He'd read stories like Jacob and he'd been formed. And he thought, this is about God's grace. This is not about my morality. You see, there's only one human hero in the Bible and it is Jesus. And the best way to establish yourself as a Christian bishop... The best way to establish yourself as a Christian bishop is to show that your life reflects the warp and the woof of the, what the Bible actually says. And the Bible says we are broken. Now, there's a lot of directions I could go with this little point. Let me just make one. If you are a Christian, if you're here today and you're a professing Christian, and actually if you're not a Christian today, well, first of all, I'm glad you're here, but I hope you look for this in us. I hope our church reflects this. But if you profess faith, your friends, your neighbors need to see your weakness. They need to see your frailty, your confession, your imperfections. And let me say another group of people that needs to see that. Our children. Our, our children need to see that we're frail. To be honest about our past at the right time and about our present. So amidst this display of human frailty, it gets a little worse for a while. I promise it's going to get good. Uh, it's not just about human frailty. It's also about the futility of idolatry depicted. Idolatry. I don't see any totem poles in this passage, Marshall. Well, idolatry is about something much more subtle and significant than totem poles, and we're all guilty of it. The biblical definition of an idol 
is anything or person that becomes our heart's functional trust. It becomes our heart's preoccupation. Idols are what we look to for identity, for validation, for our self-worth. Idol is the thing in your life that you, I have to have this or I will feel empty. And idolatry is the pursuit of that idol, trying to appease or get identity, validation, or self-worth from that idol. And this passage is a vivid display of this is this, this passage is like idol fest or idol palooza, okay? You can laugh at that. Um, but first, there's two, at least two exhibits of the idolatry here. First are the names. I'm not going to go into too much depth here, but I just want you to look at the names. Last week we looked at, Nick looked at the four names from uh, chapter 29. Let me just read off what the names mean, and I'll highlight two from chapter 30. The first name means vindication. The second means wrestling. The third name means good fortune. The fourth name means happy. The fifth name means wages. The sixth name, as in God has paid my wages. And the seventh name means honor, and the last means add. Let me highlight one for each woman. Rachel, the younger, beautiful sister, verse 6. When she has a son, she names him in verse 6, Dan, which means vindicated. Doesn't sound too healthy. Verse 20, Leah. She names a son, Zebulon, which means honor. And she says, now my honor, husband will honor me because I have borne six sons. I mean, how many sons does she think it will require? I want you to see this. Rachel has beauty and her husband's love. But her functional trust, what she needs to feel complete, is the ability to bear children. Her idol is children, and really below that, the wealth and the honor that children bring. Because that's what children brought in the ancient world, wealth and honor. That's what she longs for. Leah has children, therefore she has wealth and honor. Her functional trust, what she needs to feel complete, is the love of her husband. Her idol is affection and approval. I mean, what would your kids' names be if they were named after your idols? Happy marriage, great figure, Ivy League, financial stability, green team, career. These various idols are most cleanly, clearly seen, though, in the episode of the Mandrakes. Look with me at verses 14 to 18, because this is where it just gets sorted. Now, with the length of pregnancies, this takes place over many years. Some of these uh, little boys would have been teenagers and maybe even beyond. And at some point, Leah's oldest, a little boy named Reuben, finds some mandrakes in the field. And he brings them to his mother, Leah. Now, mandrakes were most likely some sort of love apple. They were both aphrodisiacs, but more significantly, fertility treatments. So word makes it around the camp, and the yet unable to bear children, Rachel, gets wind of these fertility treatments that are in the camp. And so the end of verse 14, Rachel goes to Leah and asks for them. She says, may I have your son's fertility treatment, basically. In verse 15, the embittered Leah says, you took my husband, now you want my love apples? Forget about it. Rachel says functionally, well, how about I let him sleep with you and in exchange you give me the mandrakes, the love apples, and the deal is struck. Now pay attention, pay attention. Rachel gets the fertility treatment and the hope of what she really wants, children, wealth, honor. She had tried through a servant girl, now she's going to try this. Leah, Leah gets Jacob for the night, and the hope of getting what she really wants, 
Jacob's love, approval, affection. She has another son, verse 20, I've already mentioned this. Now my husband will honor me. You see, friends, idols are cruel masters. They are never satisfied. Rachel and Leah keep striving, and they can't find satisfaction. Ian Duguid has a great uh, line about this uh, regarding this text. Ian Duguid, he says this, Idols always rule by works and not by grace. Idols demand more and more. And when you're unable to make a payment to an idol, things turn ugly. Think about it. If approval is what you really want and you're spurned or someone breaks up with you or the person that you love loves you, if they die, if appearance is what you really need to feel good and you put on a few pounds, if achievement is your thing but for some reason you miss a rung on the corporate ladder, students, you don't get into the play or you get cut from the team, If being in socially and someone posts something on IG and with no warning, you're out. You see, when these things happen, our idols turn on us. And there's a cascade of negative emotions that flood on us. Fear, anger, despair, because the idol is not satiated. The idol is not satisfied. It demands more and more and more. And friends, the strength of those negative emotions... They reveal the true nature of our idols and the depth of their hold on us. You see, friends, our idols don't love us. They just demand more and more. And so our idolatry is futile. But there is a hidden grace in this. There is a hidden grace in this because our negative emotions, they can actually lead us to see our idols. The reality is is that most of us don't really see our idols. We don't really see what motivates us. Everybody around us sees it clearly, but not us, okay? Everyone who has worked for me, at some point, as in love, said to me, Marshall, you really need to be appreciated and to feel like you've achieved something. I'm like, no, really? Yes, really. Everyone says it, okay? Is it that obvious? Apparently so. But here's the deal. If we can take those negative emotions and not run from them, we can actually trace them back to help us identify our idols. What causes you to worry or fear? Maybe you love power. What causes you to become inordinately angry? You're just so angry and frustrated. Perhaps you love control. What tempts you to despair? Maybe you love approval. Are you bored all the time? Maybe you're in love with comfort. What keeps you up at night? When you're up in the middle of the night, What is running through your head? Take those things and trace them back to find your idol. Because as you start to identify your idol, you can name it and begin to repent of it. And repentance is not doing penance. Penance like, you know, or saying I'm sorry over and over again. Or just saying, stop it. Stop needing achievement, Marshall. No. Repentance is turning to Jesus and finding something more beautiful. It's taking those negative emotions, tracing them to their source, and then starting to turn towards Jesus who is more and more beautiful. To to quote Augustine, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And so turning to God in repentance, to use a C.S. Lewis image, is like you've been making mud cakes in the back alley of a slum. They never satisfy. And you realize you have been given a beachfront home in Hawaii. And repentance is turning from the mud cakes, from the silly life, the idol, to Jesus, slowly 
and surely. So we've seen the frailty of humanity, the futility of idols, which is to say human faithlessness. But this passage is ultimately and most importantly about, and it parades the faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness is all over this passage. It's the theme of this story. Let me see it real quick. Let me show it to you in three different ways real quickly. First of all, God is faithful to Rachel and to Leah. There's a lot of things that are attributed to God in this passage. You know, the, the women at various times say, well, God's paying me back. God has given me this. God has seen me. But the only time that it actually says that God did something is at the very first verse, the very last verse uh, that's printed for you in chapter 30, verse 17, where it says, the Lord saw these women and he opened their womb. You see, God saw the pain of these women and he acted. He entered into them. God has a concern for the unlovely and the unloved. He also has a concern for the beautiful and the wealthy, the invisible and the forgotten, the least, the lost, the lonely. You see, friends, God is faithful to these women. He meets them. And one thing I want us to think, this is about God's faithfulness to these women. But one thing that occurs to me is that for all of us to consider who are the people around us? Who are the beautiful Rachels around you that are fighting a hidden battle? Who are the wealthy Leahs in your life who seem to have this great wealth because they have children and all this honor, right? Remember, they're fighting a battle too. And what about the Zilpas and the Billas, the hidden, the people who are invisible to us? Look for these people. Be kind as God is kind to them. But the second way we see the faithfulness of God, and this is a long story, this is the whole arc of Jacob's narrative, but we see God's faithfulness to Jacob. Now, if you've been with us these weeks, you've seen that Jacob is a liar, he's a cheat, he's a scoundrel, and he, in this passage, he is painfully and harmfully passive. But God is at work in Jacob. God is committed to, to Jacob, and slowly but surely, God is changing Jacob. Now, the reality is, is Jacob, is a, he's a complicated character, and the internal knot on him, it is tied tight. He is twisted on the inside, and sometimes it takes a while to untwist. And in this case, sometimes the only way to untwist is to go back. And last week we saw that the deceiving Jacob was deceived by Laban. And this week we're reminded that when we first met Jacob, what had he done? He stole his brother's birthright. Basically, he bought him off with some food, with a pot of stew. He bought him off. And here, Jacob is being bought off with a bundle of apples. You see, what he did to others is now happening to him. And God is using these things to change Jacob. It's as if God is holding up the mirror to Jacob and saying, this is what you are like. And he's using that mirror to change Jacob. You see, God brings Jacob back to himself by a very taste of what had taken Jacob off track. You see, friends, God in his faithfulness to us often uses painful means to change us. You see, the winds of affliction, the, the winds of affliction often fan the flame of faith. For Jacob, it was deception and a tumultuous home life. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's a difficult marriage. The loneliness of singleness, a setback in a career, not getting the college you dreamed of. But in the very midst of real pain... Is God being faithful to call you to himself? What is God doing? Because what God is saying to Jacob is, Jacob, you might not see it, but I will untangle this web. 
I will untangle this web. I will untwist the knot. Jacob becomes great over the course of like 70 years. And it's because God was faithful and committed to Jacob in these little small things, showing Jacob the deceitfulness of his heart so that he could show him his goodness. But ultimately and finally, we see the faithfulness of God to work all things for our good and his glory. Think about these 11 sons that we've read about being born in this passage. All of them, all of them born in dishonor. They become the tribes of Israel. They become the tribes of Israel. Through one of their lines, through Judah's line, will come the Messiah, Jesus. You see, this story is working itself out on two levels. On the one level, on the human level, there's this sin and rivalry and idolatry, all this ugly stuff. But on this other deeper level, the deeper magic of Narnia, on the deeper level, God is accomplishing his purposes of making Jacob into a great nation. He gives him 11 sons. I mean, would Jacob have had 12 sons if he'd only married Rachel and Laban hadn't deceived him? I mean, would there be 12 sons if Rachel and Leah had a beautiful sisterly bond? Maybe. But friends, God is able to enter into the most tangled web and work it out for his good for our good and for his glory. God is faithful. And here he works through the machinations, the evil of Leah and Rachel to carry his purposes of redemption forward. The nation of Israel comes from these 11 sons and one more who will come later. And this, friends, is just like our God. This is just like our God because years later with his own son, Jesus Christ, This is how the plot goes forward. There's two levels. On the surface level, the hatred, the fear of the religious and political leaders, even the outright justice and an evil, their fear and hatred of Jesus, they condemned an innocent man to death. But God is faithful because he used that injustice, that evil, to accomplish his purposes. Because the death of Jesus brings about the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of the world. And then one day, three days after that crucifixion, Jesus will be raised to the newness of life. You see, Jesus is, God is working through all these circumstances. And friends, he is working through the circumstances of your life. Whatever is happening, God is at work driving through with his faithfulness. And one day, all the circumstances of your life, all the hurt, all the pain, He will redeem and he will resurrect. God is faithful. Even in the midst of this great brokenness, God is driving his purposes home for resurrection, for redemption. And so therefore, friends, we can abide in hope. The God of all hope who redeemed this, this terrible, awful, evil, unjust story. He's redeeming it. He is faithful and he can do the same For you and for me. Friends, he is the God of hope. And my prayer for us is that we lean into his grace, that we abide in that hope. Pray with me. Our great God, we thank you that you are, you've given us stories like these that we can relate to, that we can see ourselves in. God, I pray that you give us the grace to see ourselves in these stories But more than that, God, I pray that you would help us to see your faithfulness, your goodness, your grace. That you are the great God of hope who holds on to us, who redeems us, and will one day resurrect us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.